Welcome to Series 4 of My Life in Design, brought to you by the DBA and design-focused PR agency Redsetter. I'm Claire Blythe, co-founder of Redsetter. In this series, I'll be speaking to more people who are shaping the world of design, finding out how they discovered that design was a thing you could base a career around and how they got to where they are today. This week, I'm here with world-renowned designer Stefan Sagmeister. Stefan runs his own studio, Sagmeister Inc. He's designed for clients as diverse as the Rolling Stones, Guggenheim Museum, Levi's, BMW, HBO, Lou Reed and David Byrne. He's spoken five times at the official TED, making him one of the three most frequently invited TED speakers. His books sell in the hundreds of thousands. If you haven't read any, you really should check them out. He's had exhibitions around the world, and his exhibition, The Happy Show, attracted more than half a million visitors worldwide and became the most visited graphic design show in history. He's also won two Grammys. He's earned pretty much every important international design award there is. Stefan, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Claire. Oh, it's so good of you to come on. Thank you so much. Can we start basically at the beginning, when you were a child, when you were a teenager, when did you realize design was a thing that you could base a career around? Well, I was not very good in drawing class in junior high school. I was pretty much in the middle, nothing really to write home about. But I was in a terrible rock band. <laughs> and through that rock band, I kind of realized that album covers are a thing. Yeah. And I went listening to music, which in my case is... 14, 15 was pretty much progressive rock. So King yeah. Crimson were our big, like, you know, <laughs> people to look up to. But to an Essa point, also people like Pink Floyd or so. Yeah, absolutely. It was that generation. I was born in 62. And when I changed back into regular high school, I made the mistake of going into an engineering-based high school, which you can do in Austria, and oh, wow. which I didn't like that at all. So the school actually specialized in engineering. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but it was not for me. I went back into regular high school, and there I became friendly with a guy who was in a parallel class who worked for a magazine called iPong. This was a youth magazine done by kids, done yeah. by young people. Uh, you know, one color printed, a very simple magazine. And I started to go to their meetings, journalistic meetings, and I started to write a couple of articles. Uh-huh. And then there, the person who was responsible for layout was leaving <laughs> and nobody else wanted to do it. So I tried my hand on it yeah. and discovered quite quickly that I'm actually, that I find it more fun than writing. Wow, okay. And simply because nobody else wanted to, I became the layouter. You know, this was yeah. all very simple. This was pre-digital. Like, you know, we basically typed everything on an IBM yeah. typewriter yeah. and then reduced it down so we could get as much text in as possible and mostly hand wrote the headlines because I figured out it was easier to handwrite it than to use the letters and sheets that we got donated from large or design studios where all the ease were already were missing. Did you see that as design then at that point or was it just the layout you were doing? It was sort of like layouting the magazine but yeah. the, the, it was designy but I think most importantly what 
happened was that the magazine was culturally active. And so we organized the music festival, we would be involved in demonstrations, we and all of these things needed posters, graphics, something. And yes. since I was already the, the guy who did the layout, I then also started to do the posters. Yeah. And I found that particularly I remember posters for festivals. I remember them to be unbelievably fascinating because this would be the only thing we would do, meaning yeah. that the only way to hear about this music festival would literally be because you would see it on the poster and I would do a poster and 500 people would show up. Wow. So it literally was this, you know, this functionality aspect, yeah. like you could do something and it has an actual effect. real effect. That's and cool. of course you would try it, I would try to do it as good as I could. Yeah. Which wasn't very good, but it, <laughs> I tried it to do it as good as I, as I could and made, you know, maybe a, not, well, a good number of posters. And that kind of set me on my way. It just basically was then clear to me when I finished high school that I would definitely study design. That's so powerful. That's, and yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, I think it's if you are lucky enough that you, are able to realize early in your life where the path is that you would want to pursue, I think that's a big luck. Yeah. That's, that's definitely, and I've talked about this with many of our musician clients. I remember I had a long discussion with Lou Reed, who also <laughs> started, he basically wrote professional cheap music for discount LPs. You know, uh, really? when he was 15 and 16. I didn't know that. Yeah, he would basically, he would be sit in the studio and the, the boss would come in and say, today, write me 10 songs about surfing. Wow. And tomorrow it would be about <laughs> cars. And they would publish these things on kind of like cheapy, on cheapy records, you know, cars <laughs> or, you know, surfing USA or this yeah, sort yeah. of thing. But of course, like, I don't think that Lou ever went back to re-record any of that stuff. But of course, it was not. fantastic training yeah. uh, early on on how to, you know, just basically working the craft. Yeah, the working way. in it rather yes. than, yeah. I think yeah. that's a really interesting point. And so I went to Vienna, immediately failed the entry exam to the University for Applied Arts, that where I really wanted to be. Really? So you in, didn't, you failed in that? So what did you do then? Did not get in uh, but I pretty much knew that I would want to do that. And yeah. so for a year, I went to a much smaller art school. And in that year, basically trained myself in all the things that I knew would be necessary to get into the University of Applied Arts, which at that time, there was a very conservative professor, was you really needed to be able to draw, which yeah. I couldn't really do. You had to do proper nature studies. But yeah. it turned out that... If you draw every hour, every day, an hour or two, that this is learnable. Like that you can yes. definitely get better at that. And I def I don't think that I ever would have become a master drawer simply because it wasn't in my heart. In that year, I trained because this was necessary to get into that class. But as soon as it wasn't yeah. necessary, I didn't. So, yeah. but it's, I'm actually still thankful for it because... Even now, I can definitely draw well enough to show somebody what I want. Yeah. 
or to tell if it's a client to sketch something out of where I want this to go or yeah. that. So it's actually, it came in as a very handy skill. So it's good enough, but it's, I think that's a really good point. That's a really good point for people wanting to get into design and that kind of thing, that if you haven't got the skills, you can go back and just learn them. A hundred percent. And I think in that case, my switch to the high school was extremely helpful because in the engineering school, I was so bad that I just hated everything. Yeah. And I hated school. I hated the teachers. I actually didn't like my fellow students either. I just hated pretty much everything. When I went back to the regular high school, I had to do all these extra examinations. And it turned out that on some of these things, I even the ones that I was bad in in engineering school, I became quite good at. And I think I realized only in the second one the joy of being good at something. And that really flipped my outlook. Yeah. Like okay. suddenly math, when I was good at it, was actually like solving a really complex crossword puzzle. There was, it was like there was actually a joyous element in it. Yeah. While two years before, I just hated it. Even though it was basically yes. the same, it like we learned the same it's thing. Understanding. Yeah. And I feel that when I then went to design school, I had this real desire to become good at it. Real desire. And of course, there were many failures, but here and there, something went out in school or I could do something that I felt, okay, this is sort of my level of what I can do now. This is as good as I I can do it. Yeah. And there is a joy in there. Definitely. And then you want to get back to that joy. So you want to do something good again. So if any of the people who listen to this, who right now feel that everything sucks and things are terrible, maybe there is a possibility to see, to seek out something in your life and really try to get good at it. Because there is, there is something fantastic about that. Makes you feel yeah. really good. Yeah, that's Definitely. Yeah. That's yeah. very good advice. Yeah. So, so did you reapply to Vienna and get in? I did. Second fantastic. year and got in and uh, finished that school. Uh, got right after school on a... Uh, Basically, on a lark, I applied for a particular kind of scholarship that I immediately got. And I had two years fully paid in New York uh, to basically do whatever I wanted. I didn't consider, I didn't really need another two years of schooling. But of course, the possibility of being in Manhattan for two years without any real responsibility other than to do the design (laughs) school work was absolutely fantastic and I loved every minute of it. And I recently saw a poster that I had sent to my sister. And on the back of the poster, I had written, this clearly is the best time of my life and I know it. (laughs) And it, it was sort of like, it was good for me to read because... I look back at that time 
as being fantastic, but sometimes you're not quite sure because there's so much nostalgia yeah. for past times that you're not quite sure, is this just my view now? Exactly. Or was it really that good? And uh, I think it was really that good. So where did you go in New York? What was the, was it, you went to art school there, was it? Um, yes, yeah. There was a, 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 I was at Pratt, which yeah, is in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now a gorgeous, beautifully renovated neighborhood at the time, of course, quite a bit dangerous. The neighborhood around oh, yeah. Pratt itself, the campus Where even then was it? beautiful. It's in Cobble Hill. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, now all fully renovated at the yes. time. He went there uh, with a bit of danger, but ultimately, you know, for me, the school was was fine and I did all my classes and I finished the homework and all that and I did it diligently and yeah. I was a good student, but this was not very demanding. Like, yeah. you know, the, I think that I lived life to the fullest in New York. As <laughs> in, you know, whenever, well, the one advantage of this particular scholarship was that they had a cultural ambassador in New York that basically got you free tickets for many, many, many things. Wow. And because most of the other people who had gotten that kind of scholarship were in chemistry or math or physics, they yeah. weren't that interested. So the, the, the <laughs> woman who ran this cultural office was super happy with me because I was going out all the time. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? And obviously I didn't have a lot of money, but I could also freelance on the side for clients that was where I could select the clients by merit not necessarily by how much it paid. Yeah. So that was also, of course, a luxury because I could really build up a printed portfolio. I had already done that in Vienna. It was part of the reason why I got the scholarship. Uh -huh. And so by the time I was done studying, I obviously I had the schoolwork, but I also had a pretty vast amount of jobs printed and executed. Yeah. So I never really work as an intern or as a junior designer really? because people who saw my portfolio have always assumed, well, this guy must have been working for years. Yeah. So I could sort of jump over the least interesting parts of being a designer because as a junior yeah. designer or as an intern, you know, you don't exactly make coffee, but yeah. You're not, you're not in charge of campaigns. Yes. You're not really the person who says, yeah. the, who sets the strategy and what we're going to do about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, so this was great. And I think that in general, you know, while I definitely studied graphic design or in, at Pratt, it was called communication design. And I'm very much still in love with that core. Yeah. But the, I think one of the fantastic advantages of being a designer is that the profession itself is unbelievably wide. And so, you know, within that thing of design, we could make a full-length movie. Yeah. We could, uh, we did furniture. We did um, now doing large and small exhibitions. Yeah. Uh, we are showing in art galleries, even though it's design. Uh, we are doing digital products. Yeah. So, I mean, there is, it's, I think, more so than 
almost any other profession I know, there is for for somebody like me who is not keen of repeating the same thing over and over, yeah. you can really move around without having to change your professional yeah. terminology. That's yeah. exactly the reason I like it. It's not only all the different formats of design, but then it's all the different industries you apply it to. So all the different exactly. areas, you learn about stuff all yeah. the time. Yeah. So looking at AI at the moment to... Yeah. Everything, yeah. like you know, food packaging to all the different types of stuff you can be working on. Exactly. Constantly learning. Yeah. So how did you get from the Pratt Institute to your first job? Did you go straight there? Well, after after Pratt, I freelanced for a year. I worked in New York because then under the terms of the scholarship, you could do that. It was called work experience. Yeah, great. But then I had to return home because it had a home residency requirement. The idea right. being that you put enlighten the Austrians with the stuff that you learned yes, okay. in the US. I, at that point, sadly had to do civil service. I got out of military service, but Austria has a draft. Oh, so wow, I okay. had to do civil service, which was at a uh, refugee home outside of Vienna. Wow. And I did that, but I missed design badly. Yeah. So while I was a civil service worker, I did a lot of graphics for that refugee camp, like, you know, the maps for the, 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 the numbers for the houses and the individual rooms, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like I did a lot of uh, stuff. And it was interesting to me that even by then, design had really become part of my life, as in I yeah. couldn't do without it. I think that the refugee camp needed it and, and the guy who ran it was happy that he had somebody who would do this. Yeah. You know, and do this for free as opposed to having to hire a design company. Absolutely. But I also realized that I needed to do it. Like that I really, that initially when I got this assignment, I thought, oh, it will, be, it will do me good. Like, you know, a year without design, it, it's going to be a good change for my brain. Yeah. But I actually couldn't do it. That's but what an opportunity yeah. to learn that Absolutely. that you actually need it. Yeah, yeah. And so then, right afterwards, I actually visited a friend in Hong Kong, and out of this got became a job uh, that was quite different from all the freelance stuff that I had done. Yeah. Basically, until then, most of my freelance stuff had been somehow cultural, like uh-huh. see it the posters, yeah. stuff like that. And the job in Hong Kong was highly commercial, really the opposite of that. Interesting. Uh, I opened a design group for the largest advertising agency there. Oh, wow. And so we did some of their clients and some of our own clients. Yeah. And but their clients really were, or let's say, the clients that needed us happened to be all luxury clients. Mm. So it was private banking, first-class airline flights, high-end department store, and a five-star hotel chain. So those four were sort of like my main clients there. Such a difference, but again, amazing experience. Oh, it it was super interesting because we had very high production budgets, yeah. So you could make incredibly fancy packages and brochures yeah. and like, you know, it was, I remember we had, it was also, of course, in the late 80s, you know, before sustainability was really something that you gave a lot of thought 
of. Yeah, so absolutely. I remember we had a, in the luxury hotel, we had 26 printed items in the bathroom alone. Wow. Like 26 <laughs> pieces of crap that stood around, <laughs> like, you know, that, like, absolutely. you know, from the little bottles of the shampoo to, you know, the sleeve where the comp came in yeah. to, there even was a hotel logo heated behind the built-in mirror. So if your mirror fogged, the only space that was left was the logo of the wow. hotel. You know, it was pretty ridiculous, the whole thing. But also kind of, well, I would say, I wanted to say it was also kind of fun, but that's actually not true. No, it was pretty ridiculous. The whole thing was ridiculous. You can have ridiculous and fun in the same, same thing. Yeah, but, but it's, excessive. I would say, it's like ultimately... The time in Hong Kong for me stood out because it was a fantastic time to learn extremely quickly about all the things that I never wanted to do again in my life. Yeah, very and valuable. That's super valuable. Yes. Totally. Yeah. But so because let's say if I would have stayed in New York, it might have taken me years yeah. to figure this out. Definitely. And in Hong Kong, I could try it. Very, very quickly, because everything was moving so fast, I could try it and immediately realize, actually, this is not for me. I remember a time when I had worked my ass off on this project, and I really put an incredible amount of effort into it. And at the end, when it was delivered, it came out just as I wanted. It was like really it was perfectly printed. It was very high-end. And then just a little bit later, when I thought about it, why I'm excited about it, I realized I just got excited by doing a hotel brochure. Yeah. No less of for a hotel that I couldn't afford to stay in. <laughs> yes. And so the whole thing just seemed totally ridiculous to me. Like it, it just seemed... Yeah. Odd. And the fact that I got so worked up about it seemed odd. But I learned. I really learned. Like when I opened the studio in, in New York, mm-hmm. there were a couple of things. One being that we're only going to work from 10 to 7, not like yes. in Hong Kong from 7 in the morning until 11 at night. Yeah, that was my first experience. Definitely. Oh, uh, and in Hong Kong, we often worked Saturday, Sunday for months on end. Wow. And so it was clear to me, New York, my own studio, we're going to work from 10 to 7 and we're going to work five days a week unless there is a real emergency happening and there's a real reason to stay after 7. And that turned out to be great. And I think we turned out, we were able to do, we, from 10 to 7, we worked really hard. Yeah. But it's also, I found that if you have that limited time, it sort of puts a little bit of a, you know, you have to get that done. Yeah, of course. It puts you under a bit of pressure, but that actually can be very helpful. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. So when did you when did you set up on your own? Was that was did you move back to New York from yes. Hong Kong? Moved and then back you to thought, New York. I'm going to set do my own thing. Well, first worked for half a year for kind of my favorite design company, which at the time was called. Emmond Company, and it was uh-huh. run by the person who really probably was my biggest mentor, Tibor Kalman. Yeah. And uh, after that, I opened my own studio and opened Great. it literally in the beginning 
remembering my first initial thought with 14, 15 that I wanted to design album covers. Yes. And so I opened the studio, basically it had a subtitle that said design for the music industry. Oh, because that's really what I wanted to do. So what year was this? How long ago? This was in 1993. So this was, okay. I was 31 years old. Yeah. And I mean, obviously this is now 1993. It's exactly 30 years ago. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So who did you start? Who did you work with? How did you find your first clients in the music industry? Well, uh, I didn't. Uh, it's uh-huh. I opened up with doing work for people I know. So I think the first job was the typography for a remote control for a Japanese toilet seat right. that was designed. <laughs> by a fellow student at Pratt, who was a product designer. Oh, really? And she needed type on the remote control for her, <laughs> for her toilet seat. That was my first job. I love Japanese toilet seats. They rock. <laughs> I still have them. I still love I got addicted in 1993 and have been. <laughs> We've got a restaurant near us in Brighton yeah. that's got one. It's so good. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, I think the second job was for my brothers, who had opened a... Uh, a small chain, three stores of jeans, like a jean store. And I did the logo packaging, all of that stuff for them. Yeah. And in the meantime, of course, I went to see all the record companies. Uh Uh-huh. And I basically, my CB was good enough that it would get appointments. So how did you do that? You just literally writing to them? I would, at the point, this was before email, so I would write them a letter and I would say... Uh, in the first sentence, like I was a senior designer at Emma Company and I'm now on my own and I would love to come by to show you my portfolio. Yeah. And this was all a little bit work intensive because, of course, it was difficult to figure out who would be the person responsible for that yeah. at the record company. It was not like you could just look up a website. It no was LinkedIn. Bit, was some work. <laughs> no LinkedIn, exactly. Yeah. But it was possible. And Emma Company was a big name, so it got me the foot in the door. Yeah. And they all said, work is good, we'll give you work, but none of them did. Right. But in the meantime, I actually was able to do a cover for an acquaintance of mine. There was a quite successful underground rock band in New York called H.P. Zinker. Okay. And they, ha- they happened to have an Austrian frontman. Okay. So I met him at a party and we got to talk and he asked me to do the cover for their next release. They were at an independent label and we did and the cover came out well and that cover got nominated for a Grammy. Right. Fantastic. And so that really made a change with the rest, with the other record companies. Yeah, of course. And that really got, uh, then they started to give us jobs. I think from the realization that you know, it's one thing to have work in your portfolio. It's another thing to be able to shepherd it through the process yes. for, for a good end result. Definitely. Because, of course, part of being a designer is to protect the idea and the form and the work because yeah. there's all sorts of entities on the way that have other interests. Yeah. want to change Absolutely. it for their interests. So that's definitely part of being a designer is able to make sure that these ideas uh, get protected to the point where they appear in the that, 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 that the initial, you know, concept is still very much apparent. Yeah. And I've learned that very, very well 
on the one hand from my boss in uh, in Hong Kong, Gary Conway, who was very good at it, who wasn't really a fighter in meetings, but he would somehow be able to circumvent uh, yeah. concerns of <laughs> the client and somehow move it. Yeah. And then very, very much from Tibor Kalman, who was the best salesperson I've ever seen in my life. Really? And uh, it just, at Amon Company, became so clear to me how important selling is as part of the design profession if you want to not be the person that says, well, look, this is how beautiful it was when I first yes. thought of it. And then at the end, it looked like crap when it finally came out. Totally. Yeah. I've been talking about this a lot recently, how to sell an idea. It's something that isn't particularly taught in design school and art school. And if you can't bring people along with you, you don't get any value out of the idea in the first place. It's really important. 100%. And I tried to instill that in my students, that they basically have to sell me every single class yeah. on how they improve the job. I actually, now that I talk about it, I haven't been as diligently lately enforcing them to really do proper presentations. Yeah. But I should get back to that because it really is, it really is part, very much part of what we do. Definitely. Yeah. yeah it's very important. On the album covers. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me who did you work for and who are the sort of big ones that people would know and how did it happen? I think the first big one that came in was Lou Reed. Yeah. Who I was a fan of. So it was Massively. fantastic. Like, you know, I basically listened to him since I was 15. Uh, that's quite nerve-wracking. You know, he came into the studio without an appointment, so he literally <laughs> just showed up. Did he? And we have a doorman downstairs who said, I have Lou Reed here for you, and I thought, but well, it's my friend Tom. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, seriously, who yeah. would do that, actually? <laughs> and so because he came to my space and without an appointment there was no space there was no room to be nervous or anything yeah, like that I like that I have to say when I first met the Stones this was in Los Angeles and I flew to Los Angeles and I met them in this crazy presidential suite at the Four Seasons Hotel <laughs> really there I was somehow nervous when I knocked <laughs> on that door fair enough yes yeah. <laughs> yeah so then you what, you met the Stones and talked about the album and got all the ideas and yeah, it, I think that we had done a couple of big bands before. We had done Aerosmith, yeah. uh, a number of others. And then the Stones, from what I heard later, was that their management had about 200 portfolios checked out. Wow. Uh, forwarded about 10 to Mick Jagger, and Mick met with three of those 10. Wow, and I, we were, I was one of those three yeah. and got the job. Uh, so brilliant. I think we, well, I one of, I remember one of the questions that I asked him was about his favorite Three Stones album covers from the past. Yeah. And he said, Excel on Main Street, Some Girls, and Sticky Fingers. Yes. And I said, well, we're going to have a fantastic time working together because I would have said the same three. I would have said them in different order. I would have said Sticky Fingers, Some Girls, and Exile. Yeah. And then Charlie Watts leans over to Jagger and says, 
What's on sticky fingers? <laughs> like he literally <laughs> did not know <laughs> how his <laughs> own album cover looked like. That's amazing. That, and Jagger said, "Oh, you know, it's the one with the zipper, the one that Andy did, because of course he <laughs> yeah. was designed by Andy Warhol, yeah, of course." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which uh, definitely made me think. I remember that story. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> So which ones did you go, to, go on to design? For? I designed or redesigned Bridges to Babylon, yeah. which was the second to last. Yeah, uh, it's, It was a complicated process, made easier by the fact that it was really the Stones who were in charge of it, not the record label, not the management. Interesting. And that's mostly because the visuals are making more money for the stones than anything else. Yes. Because they do merchandise. The whole mouth and tongue image and all that. Yeah, of course. All that, but they also do merchandise from the new album. Right. And because so many people in the stadiums already have the tongue and the mouth. Or they might buy a new version of the tongue in the mouth. Yeah. Or they might buy stuff that is connected to the new album cover. Yeah. And... I think the Stones, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's almost uniquely that the merchandise sales would be that high and that fantastic. I think it also has something to do with their longevity. Yeah. And so many Stones fans being Definitely. at an age where they have an incredible yes. amount of money <laughs> to spend on that Definitely. stuff. Definitely. You know, I mean, I remember they did a quote-unquote limited edition print of our cover in a very simple frame, yeah. signed by all four at the time. And that was, that cost $1,999 wow. in an edition of 5000 So you're talking wow. $10 million just from this single item. And I take it, it sold out. I actually am not sure. I did not check if it sold it out or not. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure. But they definitely have that sort of audience. Like, you know, yeah. if you're a, if you're a, a band that, that caters to 17-year-olds, yeah. a print for 2000 bucks is not going to be an item. Work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, for me, it was super interesting. It was not easy. I'm not too happy with how the cover came out. Really? I think it's... I would say this. I think it was the best we could possibly do under those circumstances. Well, but I think, for example, I think it's much worse than any of the three covers that we had mentioned before. But I would have much, I think that sticky, all three, sticky fingers, some girls and excellent on midstreet are better than my cover. No doubt about it. That's a shame. uh, That is a shame. And I, Thing, but it was just basically these were the circumstances, and I yeah. tried as hard as I could. I definitely it was not for a lack of trying. Yeah, I would say. absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I'd like to interrupt for a minute to tell you about a new online course that ex podcast guest Ian Wharton's just launched. It's called Sell the Idea, and it's all about how to get other people on board with your ideas. It's a hugely important skill that's rarely taught. Ian's philosophy is that an idea chooses to live or die when told to others. And it's here that even the exceptional ideas can be brought to a close. Ian's course shows you how to sell an idea well. It works on every level of seniority. It's the same course he does in person at the BBC, Dyson, Publicis, Ticketmaster and Wyden & Kennedy. You'll find it at sellthedea.co. 
and he's given all listeners at My Life and Design a 15% discount if they use the code MLID. Hope you all enjoy it. So what next? What did you move on to? Well, basically after having designed so many covers, it just turned out that designing the 50th wasn't as much fun as the first. Yeah, and, fair enough. Uh, I be basically initiated, because I felt things started to repeat itself, we initiated this idea of the sabbatical. So every seven yes. years, I close the studio. I love this. We do a year of experimentation of stuff. Do you it's, take a year off every seven yes, years? I yeah, love that idea. Yeah. That's fantastic. I, mean, I could sit on the beach and do nothing. It yeah. would be allowed for yeah. me morally or ethically or whatever. Yeah. It just it turns out that I don't want to. Yeah. And so I use these years really for trying stuff out. And they have been very fruitful to the point where if I look back, most of the things that are now close to my heart uh-huh. I'm connected to ideas that I had in the sabbatical. Wow. So I can definitely say that if, if it wouldn't be for the sabbaticals, most of the things that I'm very glad that we did, I wouldn't have done. Yes, interesting. So what sort of things have you done in sabbaticals? What's the Basically, ultimately, I made a plan. Initially, I wanted to make no plan that didn't work, so then I made a plan and wrote a long list of things that I wanted, that I found interesting. Yeah. And then put them into, you know, hourly segments in a weekly timetable, very yeah. much like in high school. Yeah, yeah. And tried out everything from, meaning in the first one it was Wednesday morning, 9 to 12, designed an album cover, including a 12-page booklet in three hours. Well, like, you know, like a, yeah. as an exercise thing. Uh-huh. Or it was try something with craft or uh, try something in this particular typography, like all stuff that I was interested yeah. in. But generally to do with design, yes. not learning to surf. Or exactly. Yes. yes. Very, very much so. Like, but I could have had, it was not forbidden to, I could have learned to surf yeah. if that would have been my desire, but yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. And I think in the meantime, you know, I've already done three sabbaticals. I'm embarking on the fourth next fall. Oh, uh, really? And the only important thing for me is, is that they're all different. Yeah. But many of the projects, as I said, let's say like that whole series on things I've learned in my life so far. Yes. So the project on happiness, both the film, the book, and the exhibition, the project on beauty. They all came out of sabbaticals. Did they? I love them. Uh, yeah, and such good ideas. That, you know, the the project I've just talked to at this conference where yes. we are. Um, Amazing talk. Thank you. You know, basically this idea that now is better that if you look at the world from a long-term perspective, that you get a 180-degree different point of view than you look at it from a short-term perspective. Yes. That also is sabbatical influenced because I would have never had the idea to embark on these very large subjects yeah. like happiness or long-term thinking or beauty. Definitely. Your book on beauty. That. Yeah, I thought your book on beauty was fantastic. Thank I you. love the, the references to how beauty used to be a commonly used phrase yeah. in literature and it's yeah. just declined throughout yes. the years because yeah. it's almost got a bad reputation, which is yeah. crazy, yeah. isn't yeah. it? So, yeah. Yeah, really and I think that we're, 
for example, on the subject of beauty, I think that we're really going towards a much more beauty-infused era again. Yeah. So many architects, specifically at the very top, like very high-end, are now talking openly about beauty again. I like that. There was a quite avant-garde architectural three-day symposium on beauty where the entry text looked very similar to the back <laughs> cover text of our book, Did it? which is a fantastic track. Exactly. And of course, <laughs> then was the idea yeah. to, for this to basically bring beauty back in the context of design and architecture. That was the, the idea. Yeah. But by talking to a general audience, because very, very, there was, I made a big decision that the book uh, and the show should really talk to a general audience. Yeah. It shouldn't just be a book for designers. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, I think that this, in some unmeasurable way, small or large, contributed to what I've seen many uh, seats really going in the right direction there. Yes. And, uh, of course, there is you know, some sort of hope that also in some possibly very minor and hopefully not so much minor way, this new project is sometimes as hopefully a reminder to people that what we just saw on X or on Twitter doesn't really mean doom and gloom. It's so easy to think but, that, isn't yes. it? You know, from the news, 24 exactly. hours, scrolling yeah. news, all that's awful. Yeah. But yeah, over a long period of time, comparatively. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting what you were talking about with your own great-grandparents. So your great-grandparents lost six children? My great-grandparents lost six children, children. and my great-grandparents my great <laughs> lost five. And this was just, you know... Just the thing. That, you yeah. know, basically, this was 60%, only 60% of all kids would survive into adulthood. I didn't know that. That was amazing. I was really fascinated yeah. by that stuff. Well, and it's, this was, I'm sure, exactly the same in the UK. Like, yeah. You know, this was basically Europe-wide, and that's just how life was. Yeah. You know, you better get used to it kind of yeah. kind of deal. Yes. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, many, many other things. I mean, for me, this factoid that 200 years ago in France, the average diary, the calorie intake was the same as in Rwanda, in the 1970s, yeah. when Rwanda was the most malnourished country in the world, it's just fascinating to me. I like, yeah. you know that what we now see of French history is Versailles. Yes, you know? absolutely. And of course, those guys, yes, they basically, you know, they spent the entire taxes on themselves. Well, actually, they spent most of the taxes on waging bloody war. Yes. Against uh, against Absolutely. you guys yeah. And, yeah. Who, and whoever else was around. Yeah. And then whatever was left over that was not in the war budget uh, was basically spent on fantastic housing situations for themselves yeah. in the court. Completely. Yeah. That has changed a lot. That has changed a lot. It's I mean, we, not. Yeah, there's still a lot we can call out. But, yeah. but we went from, basically we went from 90% extreme poverty in Europe is it 90%? 90%. Oh, my God, I missed that. 90%. Yeah, 90%. Wow. To, and this is, you know, this is not an opinion, meaning like this is proper historical yeah, fact. absolutely. Uh, and it went down to, I think, worldwide, we are now at 11%. Wow. 
It went 11%, up by 1% okay. or like almost 1% it went up during COVID. So it was 10 and now it's 11 because, well, yeah, cost of living obvious prices, reasons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we are, uh, and as I, I, as I said in the talk, uh, the UN actually predicts that we will see the end of extreme poverty within our lifetime. So, meaning it's amazing. And it's I actually absolutely think amazing. that's true that it might. I love the stat you used about, is it 135,000 people each day? Yes. 135,000 fewer people each day are in extreme poverty. Yes. That's the yeah. general. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Like, that's Absolutely. unbelievable, isn't yeah. it? That's amazing. And that, of course, happened, you know, mostly in the East. So, that yeah. happened a lot in India. It happened a lot in of China, course. of course. Uh, but also in other parts of the country. Like, you know, it's there's another one that I didn't mention, but I can say here now. Life expectancy increased pretty much anywhere in rich countries and in poor countries. Yeah. In Kenya, it, it increased so much between 2000 and 2010. Yeah. Life expectancy in Kenya increased by 10 years. Yeah. Meaning, if you lived in that time span in Kenya, you didn't wow. get older. You're basically, death did not come closer to you. Yeah. Which is Unbelievable. That's amazing, isn't it? Unbelievable. So it's just, uh, I think that there is a there is a lot of things that, because they tend to become better slowly, yeah, has no space in short to medium. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I think for many of us, it is actually. We would be better informed if we would read slow media about the same subject. Yeah. An example, like in the states, we've been complaining about Mr. Trump. Yeah. For eight years solid now. Absolutely. And I am actually convinced that I would have been better informed if I would have every two or three years read a book about Trump, how it was the last two or three years. Yeah, that's a good point. Then I would have, then I was, what I did, follow these scandals yeah. and these outrageous things he says and these things on a daily basis. Yes. Uh, you get, I think that I would sort of get the chinks of the daily anyway yeah. from discussions with friends. But ultimately, being involved in that sort of deluge of scandalous information had actually no positive impact on my life. Yeah. I don't think that I was better informed. And it didn't change anything yeah. in the Other than yeah. kind of making me upset. Yeah. Yeah. So uh it's I think the situation is differently is different if you live, let's say, in Gaza right now. Of course. And you actually need the nose to see what, to what do, happened day by yeah. day? Yeah. Like, what should I do tomorrow? Because yeah. where are the the bombs exploding or so? Of course, yeah. But for most of us, I think for a very large percentage of humanity, this incredible shortening of the news meant a much more negativity in their lives. Yeah, because negative things work really well in the short term. Yeah, scandals. Catastrophes yeah. all happen very quickly. And it's almost, I don't mean exciting in a positive way. It's almost you get excitement in your body for it. So oh, it's, for sure. it's got those yeah. sort of release of chemicals that 
it's our it's amygdala yeah. that lets it through very quickly and there is excitement in it. Exactly. It's also by, you know, the media is not mean spirited. They, yeah. they give us what we want. Of course. If we would want all positive news, they would survive. The, we the would, positive we newspapers would, we would survive. We would, <laughs> yes, we would, uh, we would, we would get it. Yes. And it's, uh, for me, and I think I should still, there's still much room to grow. It's a challenge to, let's say, do a talk or even an exhibition that has that much positive news in it. Yeah. Because it's just not that interesting. Yeah. You know, it's just, uh, yeah. I talked with a guy recently who runs the Documentary Film Festival in New York. And we, I, he said, oh, he just showed a, uh, a doc on Paul Smith, the fashion yeah. designer. And I said, so how was it? He said, Paul Smith is a very nice guy. Almost <laughs> impossible to do a good doc on that. <laughs> if really? Paul Smith would be a total raving asshole, it would be so much more interesting yes. to go doc up to, for, for all of us to see. Everyone would be like, whoa, look at this. That's so exactly. Yeah. Paul yeah. Smith's lovely. Yeah. Isn't this exciting? Yes, yes. definitely. Yeah. And so it's difficult. It's it's a challenge to overcome this. Yeah. But I feel that as a communication designer, it's sort of my duty to overcome this. It's my job. Yeah. Like you know, like how do you make this thing watchable, communicatable? How do you make it to the point where somebody wants to spend some time with this? Not seem bland. Yeah, I think exactly. what you've done totally nails that. It, it's not bland. It's really interesting. It's uh, yeah, oh, I highly recommend it. So you're going to take this around the world in an exhibition as yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely. We're opening one in Seoul in Korea next week. I'm going there. Excellent. Uh, there is another exhibition that is moving around South America right now. It will Brilliant. open in. Arosina in Mexico very soon uh-huh. and we are just putting together just in the planning phase of putting one uh, another one together for Europe like I'm mindful now that to keep the the the, the shipping as short yeah, of course. as possible yeah not just for I have to admit not just for you know, save the planet reasons, but also it's just unbelievably expensive. Yes. So we try to have these exhibitions. For one thing, they are much, much, much smaller than the exhibition that we used to do. So yeah. they're much easier to transport, mm-hmm. much fewer crates. And we try to have them, when we are on a continent, to really move around. Yeah. So that the big shipment is really only done once. Yes. So the, the exhibition that's now going to go up in Korea next week came from Tokyo, is going to go onwards to Shanghai. The one that's been planning for Europe, the first stop is in Austria, in the mountains. I mean, literally in some oh, wow. gas cube on top, on wow. top of a very high really? mountain in Tyrol. <laughs> and from there, oh. I'm sure we also like are basically negotiating now. I'm sure we can make it happen to other places. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that yeah. sounds really good. Yeah. And try to put a, a plan together that, you know, has the distances yeah. at a minimum. But that's the idea. Yeah, that's I think that if we have three exhibitions circulating, that's probably enough because that means that's a lot of people 
seeing it. That's yeah. really exciting yeah. stuff. And, you know, and I think it's a good strategy to get the overall message out because these exhibitions all come with a lot of press, you know, on some of the depends yeah. on there's, you know, there's TV there, there's stuff there. So it, you can get the message quite far and wide, yeah. pending, pending, obviously, always how big the exhibition, how successful it is. But I remember, let's say, in the uh, in the beauty show in Vienna, where the museum had a fantastic press officer. I think we had 500 articles. Wow. I didn't even wow. know that there was something else, you know, <laughs> that there was this much media yeah. in Central Europe that could write about this. That's so, fantastic. Uh, so it's, I find it a pretty good medium to get messages out. Yeah, yeah. reach a lot of people. So yeah. That's really good. Can I ask you on a different subject? Can I ask you about your partnership with Jessica Walsh? Sure. And I think it's a really interesting part of your your history. Absolutely. I like surprising things, and because she was so young, and it was so yeah. interesting and exciting what you guys were doing. So uh, Jessica came in roughly fifteen years ago uh-huh. to show the portfolio. Yeah. Which was good, but not fantastic at the time. Really? Okay. But I really loved her spirit and energy. Yes. And found myself offering her a job without <laughs> actually looking and wasn't looking for anybody. Wow. And then she worked for us, I think, for three years. Uh-huh. And she was really good. Yeah. And uh, I think not because of my tutoring, not at all, but I think Jessica found her own Great. bench while she was working for us. Uh-huh. And I had always worked with sort of fantastic number twos. Yeah. And because I had always looked for the best person that I could find, yeah. almost by design, these people would leave after two, three, four years and start yeah. their own. Start because, of course. Yeah. And I wanted to avoid that with Jessica. Yes. So after, I think, two and a half or three years, I asked her to become partner. Wow. And it turned out that she was actually thinking of leaving, so it was just at the right time. <laughs> that is a good time. She's fantastic. I think her work's brilliant. And so that uh, it, that was, for me, also like a new strategy because beforehand I had never thought about having a partner. Like when I started the studio, this yeah. was not on my mind. Yeah. And we basically said, let's try this out for three years. You know, let's yeah. see, let's see how it's going, uh-huh. and uh, but let's do it for three years. And we signed a very informal, you know, one and a half page letter. Who does what? Yeah. Who gets what? That sort of thing. Yeah. And after three years, it went very well, and we said, "Let's do another three years." Great. And after those three years, it went very well, and we said, "Let's do another." Yeah. And then I think throughout, specifically the later part. Uh, Jessica was concentrating more on the commercial world. Yes. And I was concentrating more on the exhibition, film, blah, 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 blah. So I would say for the last two or three years, I was mostly involved with the happy film, the happy show, the uh, the beauty stuff. And Jessica was doing more of the commercial work. Yeah, that's right. Segway, and then yeah. it just basically naturally went that way. She actually wanted to bring in strategy, which I had no interest in. Yeah. Uh, and I felt that 
like she wanted to grow larger and I definitely was already always a kind of like a, a trying to block that because I yeah. really like a small studio. Yeah. And so to the point where we said, you know what, let's switch it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. In, in the very beginning, we said, let's do this for as long as we both think this is advantageous for both of us. Great philosophy to go into it, though. And I think that was the reason why we, I mean, there was a couple of hiccups, as you would think there are. But in general, we could uh, we could dissolve it yeah. in a way that was very non-confrontational. Yeah. And we basically, I uh, hope she feels the same way, both came yeah. out of this really good again. That's great. Uh, and so we're very much in contact. We are actually, there's one thing that may or may not happen, but if it happens, that we would work together again on some beautification project. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so we'll see if, that, if yeah. that actually works. But in general, yes, and she is, I think, if I would sum up at the very core, Jessica has a highly sophisticated common sense. Yeah, okay. So she knows what is happening, but probably more importantly, she knows what works. Yeah, I can see that. And clients, of course, love that Yeah. because things that are designed for them are not designed to win some design awards or so, but they're really designed with that goal that was set in the beginning. Yeah. Like, not in mind, but the entire thing is to work towards that goal. Mm -hmm. And to to do that in a joyous, beautiful, hopefully lovely manner. But that's sort of the idea. Yeah, and that's it. clients like that. And that's, I think, also by how, you know, our partnership was highly successful. Definitely. And I have to say, even though that's mostly from Jessica's side, very lucrative. Yeah. Because she's actually much faster than me. <laughs> so, uh, it, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was good. It was yeah, good. And, you did uh, some great stuff. Now, of course... I really don't do any commercial work anymore. Yeah. And that's not because I suddenly hate it. Yeah. It's mostly, it's similar than the album covers. Yeah. Like, you know, once you've done 30 brands, yeah. the 31st one isn't that much fun. Mm-hmm. And there is a repetition in there. And I think also that has something to do with my age. Now I feel I should be doing the things that if I don't do them, that nobody does if I don't do them. Yeah. While there's plenty of, of talented people out there who can do branding very well. Yeah. Good and I'm happy for them because I think it's super important that that kind of work is done well because Absolutely. it's extremely influential on the visual culture of the world. Yeah. But I, I feel there is other stuff that I should be doing. And, you know, right now You're it's doing, definitely yeah. all that now is better things. Yes. I've never yeah. seen anyone do anything like that anyone else do stuff in the way that you do it before. So that kind of historical, numerical context and the art side. And yeah, I think it's great. Thank you. Can I ask you one more question? Sure. Would you have any tips off the top of your head for young people starting out today that might have an interest in design or the kind of design industry? What would you advise a sort of younger version of yourself? 
Meaning like somebody who is not in design school yet, but yeah, so I, like maybe yeah. who is like 14, 15, 16. 14, 15, 16, or even someone in design school. Like yeah. how, do you, how do you succeed as a designer? How do you get into the industry? What sort of tips? Well, it's, I mean, obviously you don't have to go to design school. That's to, a very good point. To, yeah. uh, uh, to do it, but it makes it much easier. Yes. Like it's... Uh, so if you live in a country where you can go to design school for free, yeah, or Definitely. you have wealthy parents that are happy to be paying for you design school, yeah. uh, then I would go to design school, not necessarily only because you learn from great faculty, but mostly because you're going to be among like-minded people that also want to become good at design. Yeah. And that's very helpful. Definitely. So from that point of view... If you have an interest in that, I probably would go to design school. It's, in my case, also, I loved design school. Yeah, it must so, be a lot of fun. Yeah. So it's I, from a pure enjoyment point of view, Yeah, I would do it. Definitely. Uh, many, specifically in countries where design school is for free or very, very cheap, like in Austria or in Germany, yeah. it, of course, is sometimes very difficult to get into those things. They have entry exams. Then I would say I would try to get an appointment within these schools with that professor or so and see what they're looking for. And then train yourself Good in idea. doing that because Very you fun. definitely can become better at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's extremely good advice. Oh, uh, I think that that's, I mean, that definitely ultimately worked for me. Yeah. You know, there is an incredible amount of changes happening, of course, always in design with technology. Yeah. Now this big change that is going to be with AI. Of course. And I think it would be a super interesting time to enter design right now because you have this giant change of technology that you will yeah. be able to take advantage of right from the beginning. And ride that wave, you know, yeah. like where that's going. It's, uh, I actually was not at the ideal time in design school because I basically went to design school just pre digitalization. Yeah, just before the Max came in. And yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so basically, I had to learn all that just a year later. Yeah. I think four years later probably have been an advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it's fine. Yeah. yeah totally. Yeah. That's very good advice. Stefan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you.